In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God. In one of the hymns, uh, right before the little entrance, uh, we heard the words, This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And it is hard for us on such a beautiful day, as we sit here in this beautiful place, to comprehend that there was a time in the life of the church where the very church itself became a battleground. In the year 726, the Emperor Leo declared that icons were idols and that they were to be destroyed throughout the entire land, throughout the entire empire, he sent soldiers to break the icons. The very word iconoclast that has come down to us in our time, which we throw around so glibly, quite literally means icon breaker. Imagine, if you will, if all of a sudden this morning a SWAT team burst in the back door and began to tear down all of our icons to begin to break these holy images, to burn them before us, to mutilate them, to deface them. Imagine that, if you will, and you have just a hint of what those tragic times in the church were like. Many of the clergy and the faithful were martyred in those days as they stood to try to protect the holy images the young nun Theodosia stood at the Chalky Gate in Constantinople where the iconoclasts had come. The young woman stood there and she held her hand like this and in silence simply said, Stop, you must not do this. And now for our sakes on her icon, we see her not only holding her hand upright to stop the iconoclast, but also holding a martyr's cross. For in that moment, the young woman was martyred. These icons were not then, and they are not now, idols. They are not. Although for many... That is what they see in them. For me, when I began to first encounter icons in my life some 40 years ago, I first saw them more as the church's family album. Uh, forgive the simplicity of that theology, but that is how I saw them. I saw them as the church's family album. And so it was was rather natural, it seemed, for me to kiss them, in much the same way that, with sweet memory, I kissed the picture of my departed and saintly grandmother Frances, my mama's mama. Yet even more, these icons are even more. Even more, these icons teach us clearly, without words, for the illiterate, for the young, for the old, they teach us clearly that in the Incarnation, 
the Son of God really did become the Son of Man. He really did become the Son of Man for the sake of our salvation. He took on the visible, physical stuff that is common to us, that was common to all these saints. He took it on, and that is clearly seen in these icons all around us. The truth of it is trumpeted to the whole world. If we could somehow see Jesus with our physical eyes, if we could touch him, if we could kiss him, our connection would grow in ways that mere abstractions, mere mental understanding, mere thinking about it could never ever give to us. Imagine, if you will, that you could only think and uh, uh, in mental images of the one that you love, of your wife, of your husband, of your children, of your parents. Imagine that you could only have a, a word picture of them and not be able to touch them and to kiss them. When we do this, our connection grows, and we are drawn in that connection to communion. This is what the icons provide for us. They invite us into that connection. They draw us into communion. And any triumph that orthodoxy ever has is about that connection. It's about that encounter. It's about that union that we begin to develop with Christ. The triumph of orthodoxy is a lot like Jacob's ladder. Now we heard a hint of that in, in the gospel this morning. Jacob's ladder, the opening of heaven to earth, the connection between them, that is what Jesus promised to Nathaniel in the gospel this morning. Now who is this Nathaniel? This Nathaniel we heard about in the gospel you might kind of fill in the blanks in the story you get the sense that he is one who like uh, like the holy elder Simeon he is one who had prayed long and fervently for the coming of the Messiah he had waited for the triumph of the Messiah for that is what he expected that it would be a triumph and it was his custom to make these prayers in secret, behind a fig tree. Do you have some place where you pray, where you pray fervently, where you might meet Christ? Nathaniel's custom was to pray in secret behind a fig tree, a place that he might have known from his youth. You know, maybe he'd even carved his initials on there when he was a boy. His prayers in that quiet, secret place were fervent. Yet sometimes in the quiet of his prayers, it must have seemed to him that no one was listening. And we've all felt that way from time to time. For the Roman enemy still ruled the streets of his city. Young women, young men still died on the streets, and the Messiah that he had prayed for so long to come and set it aright just hadn't come yet. Where was the triumph of my faith?
Where is the triumph of our faith? So Nathaniel finished his prayers that he had prayed in secret. He said amen, and he looked to see that no one had discovered his secret place, for he wanted to keep it a secret. And he walked on into town. And on the way, he met his friend Philip. And Philip grabbed the reluctant Nathaniel and compelled him, dragged him, to meet Jesus, the Nazarene. And when this Jesus told Nathanael that he had seen him under the fig tree, I saw you when you were under the fig tree, Nathanael knew at once that God had heard his prayers and that somehow this was indeed the Son of God who was standing there in front of him standing there in the flesh, not the idea of God, but God in the flesh, right before him. It was not a mental image or even an icon, but it was the very prototype himself who stood before Nathaniel. God had heard him in secret, and God had answered him in the flesh. God has heard you, in your secret prayers and he will answer you in your flesh by standing before you. What the Lord promised to show Nathaniel and what the Lord promises to show each of you is the ladder. The ladder that is the intersection between heaven and earth. If we turn back to Genesis and meet the patriarch Jacob on the road between Beersheba and Haran, we will find a little bit more about this. And Jacob came to a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head, and he lay down to sleep. And he had a dream. And behold, a ladder was set on earth which, with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending upon it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the land on which you lie, I will give it to you and your descendants. And in you and in your descendants shall all of the people of the earth be blessed. For behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you into the land. Jacob awoke. Jacob awoke from his sleep, and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid, and he said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. The house of God is the gate of heaven. You want to know where it is? The house of God is the gate of heaven. The Apostle Paul tells us in his first letter to Timothy that the house of God is the church of the living God. The place where the ladder from heaven down to earth touches is in the church. Brothers and sisters, we are sitting here in the house of God and we are here at the gate of heaven. And the gate, just like these icon windows, the gate is open wide unto you. 
the gate between heaven and earth is open. Many of the Holy Fathers have said that we not so much climb up the ladder as we fly up. We fly to heaven if we will see Christ. If we will see Christ and touch him. And having drawn near, we will begin to see like him. We will begin to see these not as mere lovely works of art, but as windows into heaven. We will begin, perhaps like him, to see that image in our neighbors, even in our enemies. And we, like him, having seen that, might open our arms in compassion. And if we will open our arms in compassion to our neighbors, what they, out there, will begin to see is Jesus. And they, out there, having seen Jesus, will be invited to come beyond to the gate of heaven. They will be invited to come in and to go on that ladder with us to heaven. And it is love that motivates that climb and nothing else. It's not numbers. It's love. If we climb that, it will be love that motivates us on the way. And if we do not have that love, we won't have that motivation. So Lent becomes not, a, not an open window, but sort of a heavy sledding. Lent is part of that ladder. But in it, no multiplied prostrations, no fasts that are merely from food, nor the rigors of 10,000, Lord have mercies, will substitute for a lack of mercy on our part. And if we see this love, we will be motivated to mercy. The triumph of orthodoxy is not a military conquest. It is not even just the triumph of right doctrine about icons or the right doctrines about anything else. What is it? The triumph of orthodoxy is the triumph of grace and peace and love. That grace and peace and love that we see in the face of Christ himself. It is the triumph of the love that we see in the tender face of his mother as she holds the child who is both God and man. It is the tender victory of the love that we have for one another. That is the triumph of orthodoxy. It is by the grace of that triumph that we move toward the light. May we see the face of Jesus and may we touch him in the flesh just like Nathaniel did. And in that eternal moment, in that eternal moment that you have come to, may we greet it with all the saints who just like young Theodosia kept those windows open for us. All those who came before kept the windows open, and today we honor them. And in all of this, may it be to the glory of God the Father.